Greetings, everybody. Nick DiVirgilio here, and you are listening to Michael's Record Collection. Hello, and welcome to Michael's Record Collection, where we talk about great music with the people who make it and the people who love it. I'm your host, Michael Citro, and this is episode 124. My guest for this episode is drummer, multi-instrumentalist, writer, singer, Nick DiVirgilio. You may know him from Spock's Beard or Big Big Train, but I talked to Nick to discuss the new DiVirgilio, Morse, and Jennings album, the second album by this trio of outstanding vocalists. It's called Sophomore, very fitting title. And I also talked to Nick about a lot of other topics, including uh, a lot about his work with Kevin Gilbert, his time in Genesis briefly, and uh, many other things. Can't wait to bring you that interview. Before we get to that, I'd like to remind you to visit michaelsrecordcollection.com. That is my website, and it's got links there to everything, including how to sign up for my free electronic newsletter. It comes to your email once a week and includes all of my record reviews. So you may not get necessarily my thoughts on the album in these interviews, but you can read them each week in the newsletter. There's also a link there to my Patreon. If you'd like to support independent endeavors such as this one, you can do that for as little as $2 a month. And if you want to support at a little bit higher level, you get more for your buck. There are also links there to all my social media accounts. You can find me on Twitter at Mike's Records or at Michael's Record Collection on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok, although I hardly ever TikTok. You can also email me at michaelsrecordcollection at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Let me know where you're listening from and how you're doing. All right, with the housekeeping out of the way, let us get to that interview with Nick DiVirgilio. Here we go. I am very excited to be joined today by Nick DiVirgilio. Nick, how you doing? Good. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Uh, I'm really uh, excited to get into this new DiVirgilio Morse and Jennings album, Sophomore, comes out. On November 10th on Inside Out Music. I've uh, been enjoying that. Uh, love the Crosby, Stills, Nash vibes from you guys. Great follow-up to the Troika album. But I want to start out like I always do by asking my guests, what was your first favorite record? Oh, first favorite record. Probably uh, uh, physical, physical Graffiti, Zeppelin, Physical Graffiti. Because when I was about six or years old or so, maybe seven, my brother turned me on to all the music I listened to when I was a young kid. He's eight years older than me. Mm-hmm. And the Rover off of that record was the first rock tune I ever learned on drums. Mm. And uh, I used to beg him. He was in a cover band and I went and would sit in and play that song with the with the guys when I was that young. So that was probably my first favorite record. Awesome. That's a good, that's a great choice. Uh, so tell me how about, how about telling me how you got started with drums? Because uh, obviously you were playing from a very young age. Uh, there's no real reason other than the fact, because like, I mean, I have, you know, musicians sort of in my family who played for fun, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And I was doing the typical thing you hear about kids do, beating on pots and pans. And my dad got me like a toy sort of drum kit, like a Sears and Roebuck sort of thing that had paper heads that I just trashed really quickly. And then it was, I was five. In November, and then that December, Christmas came, and um, Santa Claus brought me a 1967 Blue Sparkle Ludwig kit, and uh, I've been playing ever since. <laughs> and, and I just played. I don't know why. Um, I liked it. I obviously had very patient parents, 
um, who decided to buy me a kit. And um, yeah, and it sort of came, it just came to me naturally. I didn't really have any, I didn't have any lessons until I was 18 and went to music school. So I just listened to, somehow I was able to figure out beats and, you know, I'd watch people play and that kind of stuff. And I had some, some advice here and there, but uh, not, no proper study until I was older. And um, yeah, I just played. Wow. Well, that's, uh, that's great. So you're, you're basically self-taught but with some instruction along the way. Well, since that, since like music school, I mean, I learned, I also played brass instruments when I was a kid again, cause my brother played trumpet. So I took the trumpet after he got tired with it. Mm-hmm. So from that, and that was, you know, grade school into high school and stuff. So through there, I learned how to read music through playing those instruments. So I learned how to see rhythms and knew, you know, knew what everything was, but from actually drum study from, you know, high school, after high school, going to music school and all on to today, I've been, a, I study like crazy. I love, you know, I love all the education part of it all. And I'm sort of, I dove in deep from that point forward. Just when I was a kid, I don't, maybe I didn't have people pointing me in the right direction to study and stuff. And I just wanted to go home after school and play the records and things. So yeah, that's just kind of the path I took. Gotcha. All right. So let's fast forward a little bit ahead. Tell me how you met the Morse brothers and became a member of Spock's beard. I met them at a jam session in Los Angeles where I'm born and raised. Uh, it was a blues jam. I think it was the universal bar and grill in the San Fernando Valley. And they had jam nights. I forget what night of the week it was. And um, I showed up and you put your name on a board to sit in and they called up me, Neil and Al. I don't know if there was a th- fourth person or not. I don't re- if there was, I uh, apologetically don't remember that person, but it was the three of us. We played Hendrix or something like that. And that's how we met. Yeah. We exchanged phone numbers and stuff. And I went to a, like a networking jam thing that Alan put on a couple of days later. And soon after that, they said, Hey, we're trying to start this band called, uh, they, we weren't called Spock's at the beginning, but they were trying to, cause Neil had had written the light. He had all the music for the light already written and demoed and mm-hmm. trying to put something together to play progressive rock. I go, what? progressive rock who plays that in the 90s and um we did we did sure did because i mean that's, i love that music and it was just said you know it was so dead but there were i realized after meeting those guys that there really was there's still there was still a, a market for it and a lot of people who really liked that music still in, in that time and uh, that's how we, we got started now did you meet them before you met kevin gilbert uh yes before okay yes and 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 how did you all connect with Kevin Gilbert. I met Kevin at a, 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 again, randomly at a local ski resort outside of LA because I took a cover gig with a group of guys that wired up his recording studio. And they also played, they had a band and he showed up and we exchanged numbers. And then he called me about six months later to, to, to do the lamb lies down on Broadway at Prague fest.
And so that's how I joined Kevin's band and got involved with him. And um, we had already recorded The Light at that point when we got into our second record, um, Beware of Darkness. Uh, well, Kevin mastered The Light. That's right. He he he, got, he did the mastering for us. And then we asked him to kind of to see if he'd be up for mixing the second record. And he got halfway done before he passed away. Hmm. You were in Spox for quite a while and in, in very similar fashion to Genesis, the lead singer leaves after the big double album and the drummer comes out and becomes the lead singer. That's you. And, uh, and you go into feel euphoria, which by the way, uh, is coming out in November on vinyl for the first time. So, uh, very excited about that. It sounds <laughs> killer on, on vinyl. It sounds better than the, um, than the, when it, you know, on CD, it really does it brought that record to life but go ahead keep going okay. <laughs> i'm excited that's coming out <laughs> i am yeah. too i am too uh, and uh i just was curious as to what that period was like for you between the time neil announced he was leaving and the time you started work on on feel euphoria uh, you know i'm sure there were some doubts and some things that crept in but like dave said that all of you guys kind of had your own opinions and ideas of how spock's beard should sound moving forward what was your idea well, I just knew I didn't want the band to end, you know, so um, and it was now we were going to have the opportunity to let more of our voices be heard in the band. Um, you know, Neil is a prolific songwriter. Obviously, he writes, you know, he's got just a ton of music in his head all the time. And it worked well for Spock's all those years. Um, but it was now going to be the point where we had to come up with music. If we wanted to keep the band going, we had to, you know, write the music ourselves and and I've been writing for a long time and I had a bunch of ideas and stuff. So um, I don't know if I set out like I want us to sound like this or not. I just wanted the band to keep going. And, you know, we we had fans that we had built a fan base that had built, we had built up over the years. So we wanted to keep them happy, too, and bring them along with us. So I think we knew we wanted to kind of keep the vibe of what we had with Neil in the band, but also try and now show what we could do as well and take it to the next step. and. I think all that really did was like we rocked a little bit harder, I think, um, when uh, in sort of my time as the singer, you know, it was a little bit edgier music wise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I think that it naturally went there. It was the songs we were written, you know, we, we were writing at the time. And um, but no real like I want us to sound like this yeah. it was just kind of doing our same thing that we had normally done just with us as the writers. very emotional note to the fans uh when you decided to leave spock's beard to take the cirque du soleil gig uh how difficult was that for you after fronting that band for four uh for four albums and being a part of that band since the beginning well it was tough of course i just i mean when i first joined cirque 
I mean, the reason I, I'm thankfully I got the cert gig, I was, there was no work. I was like, I was just not working. I was still in tears for fears technically. And all that. And I had these, these great names in my, in my resume, but nobody was working enough for me to pay my bills. Um, I was hustling like I had always been. Spock's only toured every so often. So it wasn't enough to cover everything. And thankfully the cert gig sort of fell in my lap. And originally it was supposed to just be for a year, these year contracts. And it wasn't going to be like we were going to go off and join it for five years that I, like I did end up doing. But once I started in Cirque and we kind of kept going, it was, um, it, it was like too good of a gig to leave at that point. And it was uh, something I needed to do for my family. I needed to support my family better and make more money and all of those things. So I couldn't make the guys wait around. It wasn't like I wanted to leave Spock's beard, but I couldn't expect them to wait for five years until I was available to do a record. That kind of stuff. It wasn't fair to them. Sure. Um, and they wanted to keep going. So it was just, it was, it was a step that I needed to make. Yeah. Getting back to Kevin for a minute, obviously, uh, after his passing, uh, the state asked you to c- help complete the shaming of the true album, another album that just came out recently uh, on a vinyl reissue. Fantastically, uh, fantastic sounding record. What was that like for you? Because it had to be hard to you know, emotionally with the with Kevin being gone and 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 having to go through this vast uh, array of recordings and, and notes that he'd left behind. What was that like for you to put together shaming? Well, it was a labor of love for sure. I mean, it was emotional for sure, but it was like, um, you know, the guy taught me a lot. He really took me under his wing for the short amount of time that I spent with him. Um, and, and just taught me about recording and just about so many things. So, um, I knew that he should, you know, prior to him passing, we had started working on shaming because he, he just sort of had to be convinced that, dude, this music is too good. We got, you got to do something. We can't just leave this on in the background where nobody hears it. They've got a lot of great shit here and a great story and all that stuff. And he finally got convinced, probably not solely by me, but his manager and other people too, that, okay, let's let's see what you can do with this whole thing. So we, you know, we'd gone in and recorded drums properly for, um, uh, certifiable number one smash and a couple other tunes and, uh, um, just a couple other things. So it was like moving in that direction. And then, um, you know, unfortunately he just, uh, what happened happened. So we knew that I think between me and John Rubin, his manager and stuff, like it, it was music that had to be heard. It was just too good not to be heard. So we just decided to, with John Cunaberti, figure out what was there and what could we, how could we salvage it? What did, what could we do to enhance it and, and turn it into a record? And thankfully um, they were willing to do it and put up whatever money we needed to do to do it wasn't, you know, and uh, we finished it. Uh, I'm glad you did. And I think I can speak for a lot of Kevin fans when, uh, when I say that, uh, and you know, you, it, it's funny because you, uh, you were part of that, uh, the giraffe lies down on Broadway uh, recording the, the doing the lamb live with, with Kevin. And you've also have your own lamb lies down on Broadway uh, version. Your rewiring Genesis album. Baba I wandered lonely as a cloud till I came upon this dirty street. I've never seen a stranger crowd. Limbs like rubber stumps. A waved and welcome, say please join. 
What is it about that album specifically that's kind of been a part of your career and part of your life? Well, I will say that my versions of, re of my version of rewiring Genesis is going to be re-released. Really? Yes. Next year. Nice. No official date yet, but it's been remixed and retweaked, and we have strings from Abbey Road and guest artists, and it's 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 better than it was. It's just enhanced from what it was. So that's coming out, and I mean, I love that record. It's one of my favorite that they ever did, and um, I never really set out to do these sort of things. I mean, it happened to be the what when I did Prog Fest with Kevin, it was their twenty fifth. 20th anniversary of the lamb. I forget exactly. So, and it happened to have that progressive rock festival in LA and um, he was a Genesis head and um, he just, he wanted to try and do it. So that's what got me to, to working with Kevin. So it was, it was a very special meeting there because it, after doing that gig, he asked me to join his, his band and everything like that. So, and then the, the rewiring thing happened because I was hanging out with my friend, Mark Hornsby, who helped, who's helped do the rewiring thing. And we were just screwing. We tried to do like a bluegrass version of a Genesis tune. That was, I think we were drunk when we were talking <laughs> about it, but I don't know. And um, so we actually did it. And we did the Colony of Slipperman with a bunch of Nashville musicians um, who had never heard that song. They knew Genesis, but never Genesis, but never knew or heard that particular tune. Mm -hmm. Probably never even knew what the lamb was. And um, it just turned out so well with these people who, gave it such a fresh feel. They were just reading the music and, and being their creative selves. And boy, it was like, man, what if we did the whole record? Can we do that? Is that crazy to do the whole record? That much music? And so we just went, I mean, you know, it was a crazy idea that we went for because that first recording turned out so well and way beyond our expectations. Yeah, it, it did come out really well and and very different. It's, it's great when people put a new spin on a on an old classic rather than just copying it verbatim so uh it was it was an right. interesting release and, and i'm great it, it's great that it's getting a new release i'm hoping that means vinyl as well oh yeah it just never had it it never got any legs because there was some things that went wrong when it first got put out and stuff and blah you know don't need to go into that here but mm -hmm. it never got its proper due i don't think yeah. so now that we've tweaked it a little bit and uh, re, you know, just made it, gave it a little bit more life. I think it's, it'll get a little bit, and it's the 50th anniversary of that record next year. So it's, it's good timing to try and get it back out there. And, you know, at least it'll be out in the world so people can enjoy it. Yeah. Speaking of Genesis, uh, you actually played on a Genesis album and not a lot of people can say that. So uh, you were a part of the the Calling All Stations um, recording and and some of the, your work is on there along with Near Z. And that had to be kind of a strange thing for both you and Near Z having, having another drummer record. And, and can you just tell me what that process was like and how Genesis reached out to you or how you got that gig? I was on the road with Tears for Fears and happened to be in the UK. And Kevin reached out to me saying that he heard that Genesis, um, that Phil quit Genesis and they might be looking for drummers. And then he said, man, you should go find Hit and Run Management's office and see if you can get an audition while you're there. And I did. And um, I invited him to the Tears for Fears gig and we ha I only had the light. That was the only piece of music I had re like as was recording me on it. And I gave him the CD and Kevin actually wrote a handwritten letter to Peter Gabriel about me, um, thinking that maybe Peter was going to be in the band, do it or something. I don't know why he wrote it to him, but he did. Anyway, so um, that's I reached out to them and, and then Nick Davis 
called me on a Sunday morning. I don't know, but it's five, six months later asking them to send, asking me to send more music, other things that I recorded on. So I did, I just sent them demos and stuff. I played with Kevin and whatever. Then they said, yeah, we want you to come out and audition properly. And they flew me out there and then I got the gig. I mean, you know, it was totally surreal and nothing I ever expected that ever happened in my life, but it did. Well, that's it. I think that album is um, I, I think of it as a great start for that era of the band that never it never went anywhere beyond that. I think it's a very underrated record. I think the songs are, are pretty good and, and that it showed promise for, you know, continued uh, albums from that lineup. But uh, Tony and Mike just weren't interested after uh, seeing what the what the ticket sales were at the concerts, I guess. But uh, anyway, I mean, that's a great feather to have in your cap. And um, yeah. Yeah, and also brings up the question of how did you meet Roland Orsball and get invi- uh, get sort of involved with uh, Tears for Fears? Uh, it's all through everything sort of stemmed through meeting Kevin. My whole career changed after I met Kevin Gilbert. And I say that truthfully. He was he was my break in the in the rec- in the music business. Through meeting Kevin, I met the drummer Brian McLeod, who had done a bunch with Kevin, and he was also Tears for Fears drummer prior to me. Uh, Kevin and myself and Brian started this band Caviar, the three of us. Mm-hmm. We just started writing songs in Kevin's studio and jamming and coming up with this stuff. And that was really starting to take shape and something they really wanted to pursue and see if they could make it happen. It was a weird, you know, a sort of crazy industrial sounding music at the time. Nine Inch Nails was big and Marilyn Manson, all this kind of crap was was going strong in that particular, particular time of the 90s. And they wanted to kind of ride that wave too. And they were really, and it was, it was a lot of fun to do that with them. Let me tell you, uh, cause I was playing bass and different instruments and stuff. It was really cool. Well, it came time to do that, um, Rival and Kings of Spain tour. And Brian didn't want to do the tour. He wanted to keep working on caviar. So he recommended me and I got the gig basically sight unseen. I didn't have to audition. I sent a couple things in and Brian was so recommended me so highly to Roland Orzabal, um, I got the job. And then I was in Tears for Fears for 15 years after that. Um, so it was all came through Kevin and Brian McLeod, of course. He was a sweetheart of a person and an amazing player. Well, I'm, I'm happy to say that I did get to see you with Tears for Fears. You guys played uh, this big downtown show in Orlando. Uh, it was a free concert and uh, it was a really good show. Last question before we get into the D. Virgilio Morrison Jennings, I promise. But uh, you're also in another fantastic progressive rock band that I love. It's Big Big Train. How did you hook up with Big Big Train? And don't tell me this one was also through Kevin. No, no. This was through <laughs> Rob Aubrey, who was uh, – uh, Rob was our front of house engineer for Spock's Beard forever. 
uh, did all our live shows and stuff like that. And I had, I've done a million sessions with Rob. He's got a studio in Southampton, the UK and God, we've recorded four or 500 songs together over the years, I think. And uh, he had been working with the Big Big Train Boys for a long time, and they needed a drummer for the Difference Machine record. And he said, "You should, guys should use Nick." So I did that session, and from that, when it came time to do the next record, the Underfall Yard, they they got David Longden had joined them at that point, and basically they just asked me, "Do you want to be in the band?" And I said, "Yeah, I thought it was good. It was great music, and it wasn't there wasn't a huge time commitment. It was just basically just going to be a recording band. We make records. We're not trying to play live. We just want to see what we can do." and do this sort of unapologetic English progressive rock stuff. We don't care. The songs are going to be 20 minutes long. We're not going to, we don't care. <laughs> We're just going to make the music we want to make. And I said, cool. And it was really creative music, lots of great players and fun stuff. And I was very free to drum and just kind of do my thing. And yeah. And then I, now it's my band. I've been in the band ever since. Yeah. Underfall's fantastic album too, as well. But uh, uh, that's, that's great. You've had a very interesting and, and varied career. And uh, now you, uh, you find yourself in, D. Virgilio Morrison Jennings. Obviously, you've worked with Neil since Neil left the band and uh, a few times in the past. And and now, um, how did this trio start? W- was it you and Neil and then you got Ross? Was it Neil and Ross and then they got you? How did that work? No, it was me and it was sort of me and Neil. Neil had the idea to start with. He wanted to do a sort of Crosby, Steele, Nash sort of singer songwriter sort of thing because me and him and Al Morris, his brother, like we back in the early days, we used to like on tour buses after gigs, we would stay up all night long singing Beatles and CSN tunes and stuff and do the three part harmony. So I've been, yeah, we've been doing that together for a while. And he had a bunch of tunes. He goes, I'm thinking about this and would you be into it? And we just, maybe we could find a third person. Who do you think that should be? So the, we threw out a lot of names at the beginning. And then um, Ross's name came up. I think Neil threw it out first. I forget how exactly how his name came up, but. He did. And then we reached out to Ross and that was just sort of the, the genesis of it all. That's kind of how it all started. And um, Ross was up for it. And I had honestly never heard Ross in this setting, this kind of style of music. I've known him for, from Haken for a long time, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're awesome. But I didn't know Ross had this sort of thing in him. And it's, it's he's fantastic, man. It just tend, ended up being a great mesh of styles and vibes and people and it's just worked out loneliness the waiting light has no such emptiness was an interesting thing and i think a lot of people didn't realize when they saw the three of your names together that what kind of music you guys were going to be playing so i think it caught a lot of people off guard when you guys put out troika um you can correct me if i'm wrong on this i believe troika had um only one co-written song on it i think everybody had their own so is that what you guys do do you guys bring your own songs to the group yeah well i think the point of it was to to make it i mean listen you know neil can write 
8 million records a year. <laughs> He's got so much music in his head all yeah. the time. So <laughs> it could easily be all of Neil's songs, of course, but it, it was, you know, it, then that would have been a, basically a Neil solo record. It's, that's not what this was about. This was about trying to come up with something uh, where we all sort of threw our stuff in the hat to see how it meshed. And after we've kind of got the vibe going and definitely after we heard us or how our voices meshed together, um, yeah, it was, you know, so it's like, it's, it's, it's got a few my tunes, a few Ross's tunes, a few Neil's tunes. And it's just sort of like that kind of thing because it gives it a little bit of different flavor throughout the record. You kind of go through a little bit of a, uh, uh, you know, a, a path getting from song to song. And that's because of the different flavors you're getting from everybody. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, once we got the ball rolling and we kind of realized, oh man, this could really work. And everybody's tunes, like the way, the way Ross writes is different, obviously, from me and Neil, and he's got his own thing. And but it really lends itself well to the three-part harmonies. And he's super creative with his melodies and his lyric ideas and stuff too. So it's it's um yeah, it's working out pretty well like that. And it's it's nice because it's like a real collective thing as far as the writing is concerned. Yeah. Now, do you guys uh send in clips uh, or send in your parts of you know files or or do you get together to physically record this together? No, no, this has all been file shared. Hopefully, I mean, it'd be great to do it one day all together in the same room, but that's so far, it's just been, uh, you know, Zoom calls and FaceTiming and Dropbox links and all that kind of stuff. Okay. Now, how many versions of your vocals do you, would you say on average, you put down for one of these, uh, these DMJ songs? Because there are different versions where different people's voices are, you know, maybe someone's in the lead on one and then. Uh, a different version where they may be pushed more to the background. A lot of the times you kind of did experimenting and stuff like this, kind of seeing what's working. Um, Usually Neil sings lead on his tunes and I'm singing lead on my tunes and, you know, and same with Ross. Uh, Ross took a stab at a couple of Neil's tunes for the the new records coming out. So there's a couple of bonus tracks that are there. Um, And it just, yeah, um, I have a song on the record where everybody takes a lead line. That's a really fun thing to do. Um, especially when you have guys that can sing like Neil and and Ross, so it's a it's a really way, a fun way to be creative with how you're blending things around, and you kind of and it's nice to as a writer to uh, think as an arranger too, and uh, you utilize what the strengths of those guys to do what they do best. So this thing starts out with the with hard to be easy, wonderful vocal melodies. What sounds like it sounds like Neil's playing the acoustic guitar based on previous times that I've heard Neil play um, live solo shows. Does Neil arrange the instrumentation or do you guys all just kind of pitch in your own ideas? Everybody does everything really. Yeah. It's a very kind of know, democratic may not be the right word, but it's just like, you know, that's his tune. If like that particular tune, he sent in the demo and we added some stuff. And then, you know, there's things I've played bass on some songs where, they send me something, you just, whatever inspires you, we would, or same for them, whatever inspires any of us, we would just put down on tape and see if it worked and to see if it worked for the guy who wrote the song. You know, um, I've played bass on a couple of tunes that didn't make the record and same with the other guys playing a few things here and there that we thought, well, maybe not so much. Why don't you do this? I mean, so it's just a matter of trial and error and seeing what people like, but it's kind of open to whatever. Mm-hmm. And, um, if the person that wrote the tune thinks that that's cool and they want it, then that's what, what that's what stayed. And if not, we tried something else. Got it. So, um, yeah, the, you, as we're recording this interview, you guys recently just came out with uh, tiny little fires as the second single off of this.
sounds to me like there's uh, this is a Ross uh, vocal song. It sounds like is that you playing chimes or a xylophone or something on that thing? Uh, yes, yes, and no. I mean, there might be a little bit of a keyboard thing. Ross originally came up with that thing on a little toy uh, mm-hmm. xylophone. And for the recording, I had a glockenspiel at home and I laid that down, but he also had something in his place in, in England. Mm. So I think I, mean, I forget how it got all mixed in there, but it's probably a little bit of glockenspiel mixed with a xylophone, maybe even a keyboard sound too, but that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Now, does it surprise you when you get a song like uh, right where you should be, which is Neil going country? Not really, because he's written stuff like I mean, I've I mean, I've known the guy for a long time. He's written that kind of stuff for many, many years. So it's it's very it's right in his wheelhouse, yeah. in my opinion. So you guys have all these uh, songs that are kind of right out of Laurel Canyon, really Crosby, Stills and Nashy, like you said. Uh, and then all of a sudden in the middle of the album, you hit us with Mama. And what a left turn yeah. this song is after all of those uh, those types of songs. <laughs> Was there any discussion about whether or not that song fit with the rest of the the album or or did you guys just love it? So you just went ahead and used it. Well, I like like on Troika, there's that song Secondhand Sons on Troika, which is sort of the rocker of that record. You know, Neil felt it needed. We needed something with a little bit of grit on that record. And I wanted to have something on this record, too. And um, I wrote that thing. It's a total just it's a tribute to mothers. That's totally what it is. It's about. Uh, I'm a mama's boy at heart, and that's just calling out how moms are the shit. And um, it's uh, yeah, that's kind of what came up. I, mean, I sent the demo in. I made it, I made a demo that was not far off from what finished the finished product was. But then Neil took put the talk box on it, and it was just like it just kind of grew organically. And then once those guys sang those background parts, it's like man, this is totally cool. It really works. And I think it just shows the creativity of the three of us and how we can take things in a few different directions. And it leaves a lot of space for future records, too. I mean, but it's all everything is all based around this three part harmony yeah. thing that we have together. So we can do really soft stuff like Crosby, Stills, Nash-esque kind of things. But then we can kind of go in a little different direction, like Tiny Little Fires is a little bit proggy, you know, and Mama's a little bit rocky. So I think it just leaves... It shows the creativity and the and the musicianship of the guys in the band, and just it's it's just fun, man. It's just fun, and this band really has no rules. We're doing this for fun, just trying to make some great music and entertain the folks, and have some cool things to listen to for you for you people out there. And we're just you know, there's no rules to this. We're just kind of going for it. 
Yeah, well, fun is the key word because it does sound like you guys are having a blast making this. I think even uh, on one or two of the tracks, we can hear you laughing while you're singing. And uh, oh, yeah. it, it sounds like you guys are have, just having a great time. I'm not afraid. That's the one where it just sounds like you're just having a blast. You got to laugh during the vocals on that one. And uh, it's fun. I love the way this thing is tracked because there's some, the, I think the strongest songs are kind of in the beginning, the middle, right in the middle. And at the end, I think you you guys have kind of hit the highs and lows of that set list perfectly. You have um, uh, Walking on Water is a fun one for me. It's got this crazy 70s vibe that I can't quite identify, but it's it's got a little melting pot of sounds from like the doobie brothers america seals and crofts maybe some yes even like sparks uh sparks-esque the who is in there me a little bit about that song i love it that's great and um well that's a ross tune um so it's it's got his sort of stamp he's got he's a real creative writer that guy and i I didn't realize until i even started this band that ross loves country music and pop music and stuff even though he's in this like like, you know hardcore sort of uh, proggy metal band um but uh his he's just a great musician so um you're right i think once we started that tune you know I'm influenced by everything you just, all those bands you just said. I love all that kind of stuff. I'm sort of a child of that era. And uh, those kinds of things are just sort of in my blood from listening to all those songs and the millions of cover gigs I've done over the years. So yeah, it just sort of morphed in that direction with the with the vibe. And uh, and you're not the first person. A few people have said that has a kind of a Doobie Brothers thing to it too, which is, which is great. I think it's great. Very cool. Very cool. So uh, what are your thoughts when somebody buys this record and listens to this thing start to finish? What kind of what do you want them to take away from that experience? Oh, I just want them to have an enjoyable listening experience. Nice songs. Um, when you know, feel sad when they hear a sad song, happy when they hear a happy song and just enjoy the listening and enjoy the tunes and have a good time. Uh, that's it. If they, if they take away that, that it was good, maybe, you know, find their favorites and play them over and over again. And, and share it with their friends, I'd, I'd be happy as a clam. So you're having a big year. Uh, you got the new Dave Virgilio Morrison Jennings album that's coming out in November. You got a vinyl re- reissue of Feel Euphoria. And before Christmas sometime, a new Big Big Train album coming out. What can you tell us about that? I know you guys like to keep things under wraps. Well, it's not coming out before Christmas. No, there's a Big Big okay. Train record early next year. Yeah. Okay. Um, the date's not set yet, but it, you know, it'll be early next year. We're playing cruise to the edge in March. So I'm sure we're trying to plan something around that. Um, but you know, missing big, big train is my main focus musically, um, band I'm super dedicated to, and uh, we're just trying to grow that brand as much as possible. We did our big European tour, our first big European tour just this, you know, last month. 
which was great. And um, it's time to share that that experience with the world more. And um, we're finally kind of getting, finally going to play on this side of the pond, which I'm, so, God, you know, I'm ecstatic about because I think they're traveling this way finally. I, I don't have to take the international flight for once. And uh, yeah, so just that's what's happening. Awesome. Well, you uh, have you guys already put that album to bed as far as recording it? Is it in the mixing stage now? Or All right. Yeah. So it's, you know, that's the thing is when I talk to you guys, uh, when I talk to any artist, and it's usually about an album that's coming out, like the new uh, DMJ album. But you guys finished that a while ago. What are you working on right now? Um, I'm doing a re-release of my rewiring Genesis. I, t- I mentioned that. So that's coming out next year. So finishing off that, always writing new music. Um, and I mean, there's plans. You know, we're we're thinking like Big Big Train. We're thinking about the next record already, even the one past the one that's not released yet, because we really. It's the best band I've ever been in as far as planning ahead and seeing that sort of five-year plan sort of take shape and that kind of stuff. It's really the way it or the way it's organized is really cool. So always thinking about that. I have some more gigs with Mr. Big coming um early next year to finish off their little farewell tour thing. So yeah, I got a lot coming on and just always writing new stuff to for the next thing. You know, I'm I might be starting a little project with my daughter Sophia, which would be cool. I'd like to make another Nick DiVirgilio solo record too, but it's just all in time. And um, I'm hoping that DMJ goes on the road here in the not too distant future. I mean, I really would like to take and play these tunes in front of people. I think it would be a really nice, enjoyable evening of music and uh, really fun as well. So I'm, I'm, I'm pushing for that quite a bit. That would be cool. And, and this type of music might get you involved, uh, getting you invited to some new festivals that you guys haven't been playing before. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. How have audiences been receptive to, uh, you know, to Big Big Train with the new vocalist? Oh, it was great. Everybody yeah. was super supportive. And I mean, big crowds, small crowds, it didn't matter, man. We had great energy at every gig. And Alberto's great. He really is a great front man. He knows how to connect with the crowd and he, he performs well. And um, and it's a great, I mean, the, the, the musicianship in the band is just on fire right now. Everybody playing their butts off. So it's really exciting time as far as that's concerned. And, every, and, and we had great reactions at every show we played. All right. Nick DiVirgilio of DiVirgilio, Morris and Jennings. Follow up to uh, Troika is called Sophomore, very appropriately named. Uh, that's coming out November 10th and uh, on Inside Out Music. Very uh, excited about that. Of course, the Feel Euphoria album as well on vinyl. Looking forward to that. Rewiring Genesis next year, early next year, new Big Big Train. Fantastic stuff, man. It's been great talking to you. Great catching up with you. I appreciate your uh, your time. And uh, thank you so much. I wish you nothing but the best of luck with all of these releases. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Michael's Record Collection is hosted and produced by Michael Citro. Logo graphic courtesy of Jerry Cutchins. Follow Michael's Record Collection on social media, at Mike's Records on Twitter, and Michael's Record Collection on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. If you like what you hear, you can support the show through our Patreon at patreon.com slash Michael's Record Collection. For the free newsletter version, go to substack.com and just type Michael's Record Collection into the search bar. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.